those of you that are visiting, we started a journey in our church about three or four years ago where I preached through the book of James for a couple of years, and we looked practically at what it, how we marry grace with works and how we work that out in our lives. We also looked at Galatians. I preached through Galatians for more than a year, just trying to understand the gospel, what the gospel means, what the gospel looks like, and how that affects our lives. Recently, we've been having a look at... Um, We've done a series on the Holy Spirit and asking God to show us more of the person of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then I felt really would love to talk about heaven with you for the next couple of, of months. Um, and so I've been looking forward to preaching this series for a while. And I don't know when it's the last time, when was the last time you heard anyone preach about heaven? Wow. That's a long, that's not so cool. Well, I have to put my hand up because I'm a preacher. But um, heaven has fascinated me for, for a long time. And, and I guess if I'm honest with you, most of us don't really even consider what we think about heaven, what we believe about heaven, until we are faced ourselves with the loss of a loved one or some kind of tragic event that affects us personally. And then suddenly our minds turn towards eternity and we start to think, well, Actually, what do I believe about eternity? What do I believe about heaven? And it becomes a subject that we do start thinking about. And so my heart really in terms of, of preaching this over the next couple of months really is to encourage you and I hope in your own thinking, in your own life, to get to grips with some of the big issues of what the Bible says about heaven that would help you live well now that would help you live courageously now without fear, knowing that God has an eternal future for us as believers. Yeah? And I think, you know, six or seven years ago now, I, I lost my mother to cancer. And one of the, um, we, fortunately, Helen and I were, man, we were, we were with her for a um, couple of weeks before she died. And, and it was a, for me, it was a heart-wrenching uh, time as a son. Because when she died, my mum, she weighed little more than 30 kilograms. And I'd seen her get eaten up by this cancer and her body shrivel and die. And uh, I remember one time we were nursing her and uh, she stood up. We were, she wanted to go to the toilet and, and I was so weak. She just passed out and, and we had to catch her so that she didn't fall on, on the, um, the shower floor. These kind of things motivate you to think a little bit about eternity. And I guess that really, if I'm honest with you, that's, that's um, where the journey started for me. Or uh, maybe I can put it like this. Um, perhaps you haven't really thought about it very much. Until you get a pet in your family. Anyone got pets here? Well, what happens the first time that your beloved Marmaduke the cat passes on to eternity? Or your favorite dog dies? Or if you were like me, we had a, a Syrian hamster called George, who was a delightful addition to our family. And I, when our boys were very small, they loved to play with little George. And then one day, he was uh, curled up in his little ball, and we realized that he was quite stiff and wasn't moving anymore. And then I had to have the uh, conversation with my boys about what had happened with George, the hamster. It's going to confront us all, sooner or later. And, the, you know, many things in our lives are very different. Your experiences are very different to my experiences. We've had different backgrounds, different cultures. But this 
two things we all share. We are born, and one day we're going to die. All of us have those two experiences in common. And so I hope that you will be encouraged as we have a look at some of these things in terms of what the Bible says. Um, I had a look on Google this last couple of weeks, and it's fascinating if you just Google heaven, how much stuff comes up. There are hundreds of books. There are there are many people writing um, different things about heaven. There are hundreds of different views. In addition to that, uh, there are all these stories that people um, write down about near-death near experiences. Uh, people claiming that they've died and gone to heaven and come back, and then they put something up on YouTube about what heaven looks like or what, what they, they experienced. You add into that Hollywood movies that have been made about heaven, and what you end up with is this really confusing, complex kind of mishmash of stuff about heaven that we are supposed to wade through and try and make sense of. And many people ask questions about heaven like this. Uh, who will be there? That's a big question for people, isn't it? Who's going to be in heaven? Will I be there? <laughs> what will it be like? How will I know what it's going to be like? Uh, so some people ask those kind of questions. There's a whole bunch of other Christians that uh, say things like this. They ask an entirely different question. They say, shouldn't we rather be focusing on life right now and living right now well and living for the kingdom now and making God's kingdom come on earth now? Let's not worry about heaven up there. Let's get it right now. And so I would answer with those people, Absolutely. Yes, let's live passionately to see God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. But my conviction is that uh, we have to get a strong understanding of what the Bible means when it talks about heaven. And once we do that, we can get a firm grip on how we should live now when we're living with the correct perspective of eternity. And so if we are going to be heaven people, those that are consumed with, with God's um, future for us, it's going to help us live well now. And that really is my, um, my heart for this series. And so to answer some of these questions, and, and there are many questions that people have about heaven, I'm going to use three main texts, all right? The first is the Bible, the Scripture. We're going to spend time looking at what the Bible says. The second is a, a number of books I've been reading over the last couple of months. A guy called Scott McKnight has written a wonderful book about heaven. And I'm going to use some of his thoughts as an outline for this series. And then there's a guy called Randy, uh, Randy Alcorn who's written a, a big, thick tome like this on heaven. And I'm going to use some of the things out of that to flesh out some of the thoughts that I have for you. But let me start by saying this, and this is a journey. Uh, can I just say I cannot possibly in a half an hour this morning answer all your questions about heaven. And uh, it's going to take months, all right? And so we're going to look at it systematically and slowly, and that's how we do it in this church. And so please, if you have questions, write them down. And uh, if you'd like to give them to me, I'll, I will um, try and answer them uh, as we go through the series. But let me start by saying this, that talking about heaven excites the imagination of many people, from children to atheists, authors, movie stars, and ordinary people like you and me. And uh, all of these people imagine something that they think heaven is. And I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis is one of, my he's one of my heroes. And he says, as he's talking about heaven, he says this, These are all guesses, of course, only guesses. If they are not true, something much better will be. I love that. 
I love his, uh, his thought process. We, we, we're doing our best. We're trying to imagine. We're trying to see what the Scripture says. But all of these things are guesses. And if we're not right, it's going to be much better than what we think anyway. I love that. I love Tolkien as well. And if you know Lord of the Rings, he writes beautifully through one of the characters, uh, Gandalf, in Lord of the Rings. And he says this about eternity. He says this about death. And, no, the journey doesn't end here. Death is just another path, one that we all must take. The gray rain curtain of this world is drawn back and all turns to silver glass, and then you see it. It's beautiful, isn't it? Trying to describe something of what heaven might be, what eternity might be. And even in our increasingly secular world where faith is definitely on the decline, when someone asks, is there heaven, most people will have an answer or at least a guess. And some people are really bold to define what they think heaven will be like, and uh, others are more cautious. But to, to, to start, I'd like to give you a number of examples of um, different views on heaven. And the first uh, view that I'd like to try and paint is the, the view of children. Uh, one of the first jobs that I had was teaching music to kindergarten ch children in my 20s. And I learned then that children are brilliant. They, they have the most insightful things to say at age three and four, if you'll just listen to what they have to say. And so um, I just remember one of my examples from my own family is my, my son Jesse, when he was four, we had a visiting preacher in our church that some of you have met called Pete Hart Brown. And he was staying with us, and Jesse was lying on the floor playing with his uh, Lego, turned onto his back, and he looked Peter, who's about six foot four, he looked him in the eye, he was lying there, he said, Peter, do you know why we die? So Pete said to him, no, Jesse, why, why do we die? And he looked at him and said, because it's part of life. Which I thought was a brilliant answer for a four-year-old. He had been thinking about dying. Well, it's just part of life. It's just part of this process that we go through. Um... And when you talk to children often, they think of heaven as filled with the things that make them happy. So for our boys, over the course of their lives, heaven probably, when they were three or four, would be uh, a place of boxes and boxes of Lego that they could just play with for hours and construct for hours. Why? Because for them, heaven is a place where happiness is, and what makes them happy is Lego. So therefore, heaven must be full of Lego, surely. You hear what I'm saying? Um, I read the story this week of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Many of you know Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a uh, f famous theologian who was martyred for his faith in World War II by Hitler. And he grew up with a twin sister called Sabine. And um, they would, every night before they went to sleep, they had this, this little process that they did. They slept in separate bedrooms, and they tapped the wall. And, it, and when they tapped the wall, it was a reminder to them to think about a heaven and eternity. And why, why was that? Well, because their older brother in World War I was um, a guy called Walter, and he was killed in the First World War. And it really impacted on their family, and uh, it was an unbearable shock for, for Boniface's mother. And so the atmosphere of their home was directly affected by Walter's death. And so Boniface, when he writes later, he says that he became obsessed with dying a good death uh, because of what he had seen through Walter's life. And so they tapped themselves, the, the wall just to remind themselves, we want to think about eternity, we want to think about the future. Now, not many children grow up with that kind of 
mindset, with that kind of view. But there's a couple of examples for you of, of uh, what we can learn from children. What about atheists? You know, we're told more and more that uh, our, our culture is more atheistic and more um, secular. How do atheists think about heaven? Well, I read an example this um, week in one of the books that I was reading, Scott McKnight's book, and, and he writes a story of an atheist, a guy called Julian Barnes, who wrote a book called The History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. And in this book, he pokes fun. He lampoons uh, people who think they know about heaven. And so he imagines, in response, he imagines his own kind of heaven. And so in this kind of imagined place, he has breakfast in bed multiple times a day. He takes long, long baths. He does everything on his bucket list. He goes on cruises. He explores the jungle. He paints perfectly. He falls in love many times with many different women. He meets famous sports people. And all, in all of this process, he begins to notice that there doesn't seem to be any God in heaven. And so he has a God, someone who's taking him around heaven, a woman called Margaret, <laughs> this imagined God taking him around heaven. And he asks her, he says, Margaret, I don't, want to be, uh, I don't want to sound ungrateful, but where is God? To which she replies, God, do you want God? Is that what you really want? And he responds, I, I, don't, I didn't think it depended on me in any way. And she says, she replies, of course it does. Heaven is democratic these days. Or at least it is if you want it to be. What do you mean dem democratic, he says. Well, we don't impose heaven on people anymore, she says. We listen to their needs, and if they want heaven, they can have it. If not, not. And then, of course, they can get whatever kind of heaven they want. So he says, and what sort of heaven do they really want on the whole? She replies, well, they all want a continuation of life. That's what we find, but much better. So he says, oh, you mean more sex, golf, shopping, dinner, meeting famous people and not feeling bad about any of it. <laughs> and so this kind of picture that Julian Barnes is painting, this kind of atheist view of heaven, is really an honest description, I think, of much of how people think about and speculate about heaven. And it's good that we face that as Christians because it does, face, it does force us to take a deeper look for ourselves and ask this question, is heaven really nothing more than the projection of everything that we enjoy here right now? Is that really what heaven's about? Is it just uh, projecting on into eternity what we really like most about the things that we enjoy on earth right now. And I suspect there are many people that really share that view of Julian Barnes. People dream of heaven being the fulfillment of their longings, their best wishes, the healing of their hurts, the answer to all of their questions. They think of heaven as more delicious food, more outstanding sex, more possessions, more reunion with friends, more money, more glory, more pleasure, more, more, more. That's how people really think about heaven. So that's an atheist view. Well, what about some authors? Well, the, there's a novelist called Karen Zacharias, and she says this, to me, it's hard to visualize heaven. To be honest, streets of gold and gated communities don't really interest me much. And I only want a mansion if there are staff like on Downton Abbey to take care of it. My idea, my idea of heaven would be home at the end of a small dirt road on a bay. 
a place surrounded by white roses, a porch for thinking and pondering on, and birds, mockingbirds, redbirds, bluebirds, many birds. She's obviously an American lady. Now that's a picture that I think many introverts share, isn't it? Heaven would be a little spot in a little cottage on the bay, on the beach somewhere with quiet. That is heaven. Uh, there's another writer that you know, I'm sure, Ernest Hemingway. He was a kind of macho guy in the, in the 20s and 30s who wrote some wonderful books. But he wrote a letter to um, Scott Fitzgerald, who wrote great, The Great Gatsby in 1925. And listen to what he says about heaven. He says, To me, heaven would be a big bullring, with me holding two seats and a trout st stream outside that no one else was allowed to fish in and two lovely houses in the town. One, where I would have my wife and children and be monogamous and love them truly and well. The other, I would have nine beautiful mistresses on nine different floors. And then there would be a fine church like in Paploma, where I could go by on the way and confess on the way from one house to the other. And then I would get on my horse and ride out with my son to the bull ranch and toss coins to all my Ill 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 illimitated children that lived along the road. Well, at least he's colorful. <laughs> at least he's funny, even if you don't agree with his view on what a man should be. But he has a vivid imagination, doesn't he? And I, I guess that's, that's, that's what I'm trying to say in all of these examples, is that there's a mishmash of guesses, of opinions, and it all helps to make our thoughts about heaven quite uh, confusing. So how can we know what heaven will really be like? Well, I want to say I believe we can. And part of the sermon series is going to explore some of the things that the Bible says. So I hope that you'll come back. I hope that you'll listen some more on the podcast to find out what, how, if we can know what heaven will be like. Is heaven an illusion? Uh, no, but, for, but sometimes it can be. Is heaven merely in our brains? I think for some people it is. Is heaven a grand projection of all that we want most for our world right now? Like I've said already, I think for some people it is. Is he heaven a spiritual realm unlike anything that we could experience on, here on earth? I think in part it is. Can we know who goes and who doesn't go? Yes, we can. Is there a way of knowing more about heaven in detail? Yes, there is, and that's part of what we're going to explore together. What about all these near-death experiences that you read of and hear people uh, writing about, and some are tempted to fabricate? Well, we'll look at some of those as well. But before we try and answer the detailed questions, I would like to spend the rest of this morning just starting to sketch for you some of the big things that the Bible says about heaven. Because for me, it's most important that we get our view as Christians about what heaven is from the Scripture. And then after I've done that uh, over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to look at six wonderful promises that the Bible says we can be certain of about what heaven is going to be like. And I hope that will enable you in your thinking to frame some of the other questions with those six big columns in place. And then you can start to... Um, answer all the other questions. Will animals be in heaven? Will I recognize my family? 
All that kind of stuff that people ask all the time. We can frame those smaller questions once we have the six big things in place. And so that's where I'm going to um, continue this morning. And the first thing, the big question I, I would like to ask us to consider is simply this. Have you ever wondered where you get your ideas about heaven from? <laughs> For example, where did anyone get the idea that heaven would be playing harps or singing all the time? Or that heaven would be like some glorified eternal church service? Where did we get the idea that heaven would be flying around like angels? Take a minute right now to consider your most beautiful, precious idea about heaven and ask yourself this question, where did you get it from? You're all doing that in your minds right now. Because I have a favorite thing of heaven. I love the Mediterranean. I love food. I love wine. And one of my favorite ideas is that heaven is going to be like the most beautiful, balmy, cool summer's evening overlooking the most glorious vineyard you've ever seen. And as the, set, the sun begins to set, there's a cool breeze that begins to blow. I'm sitting with all of my family and friends overlooking this turquoise sea, enjoying the warm sun, snacking on cheese and olives, and enjoying the sound of the ocean and the smell of ozone and salt in the air. That, for me, is heaven. You might think, well, I don't think that's heaven at all. But as I think about it, I have to admit that my idea, this idea, comes from many wonderful experiences that we have had with my friends and family over many years where we've experienced those very things that have become very precious to us. So where do you get your ideas from heaven from? And when I was thinking about this, I have to say, we certainly get our ideas from what heaven's going to be like from our parents, absolutely. From pastors and teachers, absolutely. From the internet, most certainly. <laughs> from my own experiences and experience of others, yes. From our hopes and our dreams and our expectations, yes. Even from great writers of the past, people like Dante and Millian and Bunyan, Milton and Bunyan that have affected our culture, we don't even know we've absorbed those things, but we have in our views about heaven. From movies, absolutely. From the Bible, I'm not so sure. Let me just take a moment to justify what I've just said. If you look at the classic creeds of the Christian faith, now the creeds have been written down by great thinkers in church history just to help people to understand what Christians believe, the basics of the faith. Those creeds, and there are three of them, have very little to say about heaven or hell, which is uh, very unhelpful if you're trying to help Christians understand what they believe. And so the granddaddy of the creeds is the Apostles' Creed, and if you know the Apostles' Creed, one of the things the Apostles' Creed says is that Jesus descended into hell and ascended into heaven and he now rules and that we, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And the last two words of the creed, the creed affirm that Christians believe in life everlasting. That's the Apostles' Creed. We believe in life everlasting. Well, you might be forgiven if you looked at that like I did and said, is that it? 
Is, this, is that the best we get? We believe in life everlasting. Is that all that the apostles have to say about eternity? We believe in life everlasting. Well, that's great, but it doesn't tell me much about heaven. The most complete creed that we have is the Nicene Creed, which when you look at it, it says very little more. It just says, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. So it expands life everlasting into life of the world to come. And that's it. Nothing more. And then we have the Reformers who come along centuries later. And after the Reformation, they write the Westminster Confession. And uh, they say this, For then the righteous will go into everlasting life and receive the fullness of joy and refreshing which comes from the presence of God. Now, I love the Reformers. They're my heroes. But even the Reformers don't, aren't helpful. They don't say much more than the Apostles or the Nicene Creed. They simply enlarge it a little bit more by adding, we will experience fullness of joy and refreshing in the presence of God, which is wonderful, but it's not very helpful to know what heaven is like. And so the problem is that all of us, we have great imaginations, great curiosity about heaven, but we seem to get little help from the creeds and confessions, certainly. And that presents us with a problem. And the problem is, most people imagine heaven to be very similar to what they think it's going to be. Like my story about the vineyard. And you can even see that in films. Uh, if you like films like I do, who knows, it's a wonderful life. Know that movie? That's, that's someone's imaginings of what heaven's going to be like. Who knows Monty Python's meaning of life? Fewer people put up their hands. They're embarrassed to put up their hands. Okay, well, I've, I've seen the meaning of life. It's also someone's view of possibly what heaven could be like. What about music? Who's heard Eric Clapton's Tears in Heaven? Beautiful, beautiful song. When his son, three-year-old son, fell to his death, he wrote this song. There'll be no more tears in heaven. There's some old classic hymns like in Beulah's Land and in the Sweet By and By, these old-fashioned songs that sing about what people imagine heaven's going to be like. I, I already mentioned uh, some books from literature. Dante's The Divine Comedy. Milton, Milton wrote a book called Paradise Lost. Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. All of these books were someone's imaginings, someone's thoughts, someone's trying to understand what it's going to be like one day in heaven. And all of those things have shaped our belief as Christians. Even Michelangelo, have you seen his famous painting of the final judgment? So many people have been affected by that painting. What is that painting? It's a picture of heaven with hell looming over the heads of all those that are sitting under judgment. The people get the ideas of heaven from that. And so, all of these things affect us, and it's very few of us that are able to find our way through all of those things to try and find out what the Bible actually says. And I don't say that to accuse anyone. I found it challenging to have a look and see what the Bible really does say, and it does take some work. But let me just say this with all that I've said. Movies, books, paintings, all those things are people's imaginings of what heaven is going to be like. All right? Keep that as a big thing in your, in your mind. But there are two, two things that I would like to say this morning uh, to finish off with two historical views that the church has had about heaven. 
And because we have such wonderful, wonderful uh, fertile imaginations that, that are God-given, we can plot, if we look at what people have written and how people have uh, understood heaven through church history, we can come up with a very simple th framework that I think can help us as we think about heaven. One view of heaven is a God-centered view. I'll call that a theocentric. It's, it's focused on God. And the other is a world-transformed view of heaven. And if you look in church history, the, you have these two views that people major on. In the, in the God-centered view of heaven, it focuses on things like this, unending praise of God, uh, worship, enjoying God's presence. The kingdom-centric view of heaven focuses on where God's people will live together as God intended us to. And so the God-centered view focuses on His glory, worship, intimacy with Him, holiness. In that kind of view of heaven, family is not important. In fact, some people eliminate it altogether. Fellowship is not important. Heaven is up there somewhere, and it's a spiritual kind of existence that we enjoy. That's a theocentric view of heaven. A kingdom-centric view of heaven focuses on, like I've said, God's people living together. It's about perfect society. It is about worship and fellowship, but there's also justice and peace. There's engagement socially. The family unit is perfected. Fellowship is emphasized, and we have a new heaven and a new earth and new bodies that we enjoy. And as I've been thinking about it, it seems that when you look at church history, those two extremes have been uh, majored on by pastors and parents, and they've taken sides at one of those two extremes and exaggerated the one view at the expense of the other. Uh, when I was at university, I studied English, and one of the books that we studied, um, at, at, actually wasn't at university, it was at school, was uh, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Who's read Huckleberry Finn? Anyone? It's a brilliant book. Go do yourself. Re read it to your kids. And... Um, it's about two boys, two ordinary boys, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And uh, in this little bo this book, there's a cameo. There's a character called Miss Watson, and she's a very religious type. And she's trying to explain to these very two simple boys that enjoy playing in the river what heaven is like. And she has a theocentric view of heaven. This is what she says to, uh, this is how um, Huck describes it, the conversation. Now she, Miss Watson, a tolerable slim old maid, got a good start, and she went on and told me about a good place called heaven. She said all a body would have to do was to go around all day long with a harp and sing forever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said not by a considerable sight. And I was glad about that because I wanted him and me to be together. It's brilliant, eh? So that's a very theocentric view of heaven, isn't it? But equally, when you, when you hear people that major on a kingdom-centric view of heaven, some of their descriptions seem to be so ordinary. It's like they imagine heaven to be this kind of ongoing barbecue all day long. Now, I enjoy barbecues. But it's like a combination of this wonderful barbecue and the best sort of new wine experience or soul survivor experience or Hillsong Conference, the best of all of that wrapped together with this kind of fellowship where everybody loves each other. It's like a glorious barbecue with a little bit of fellowship involved. And I want to ask you, do we really want heaven to be like living in tents and going to meetings all the time? Is that your idea of heaven? You know, it's not my idea of heaven. 
All I'm trying to say is that we have to get a balance between this very God-centric view and a kingdom-centered view, and I believe it's possible to get that balance right. Because I'm convinced of this, that we are called in this life to love God with all of our hearts and to love each other with all of our hearts. And I am convinced that in heaven, we are going to do both of those things equally well. We're going to be loving God. We're going to be loving each other. We're going to be enjoying God. We're going to be enjoying each other. And I hope to paint this picture over the next uh, couple of months. Are you still with me? Because I'm finishing now with I want to use two examples of what I mean. There are going to be two kinds of people in heaven. And I've picked two people from church history to show you what I mean. Each of these people represents one of those two extremes. On the theocentric side, we have A.W. Tozer. I love A.W. Tozer. I love his devotional writing. I love the way he writes about worship. And he says this, I can safely say, on the authority of all that is revealed in the Word of God, that any man or woman on this earth who is bored or turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. That's what he says. Why? Because his whole life was motivated about a desire to get people to understand how to communicate with God, about fellowship, about worship, about prayer. That was his whole life. He's got a theocentric view of heaven. And so he says, if you're bored with worship here on earth, don't bother to go to heaven because we're going to be worshiping God for all eternity. That's his kind of framework. And then on the other side, for the sake of my illustration, I'd like to choose another hero of mine, Martin Luther. He has a very different view. Remember, he was a celibate Augustinian Roman Catholic monk. Just remember that. that that's who he was. Celibate, Roman Catholic, beat, beat himself with a, a whip, fasted, prayed. He was very into uh, spiritual discipline. That's how he was, right? Then he has a revelation of God's grace as he's reading Galatians. And he starts a revelation, a revolution. He, he, he puts on the doors of um, the, the cathedral his manifesto in Latin that no one can read. Within two months, it's been translated from German into English. It's gone all the way around the known European world in two months. And it changes everything. He understands the grace of God. And one of the things that changes is that he began to say converted Catholic priests could marry. So I hear you ask, who did he marry? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because it's a really cool story. So here's the story. In the nearby town of Torgau was a respected citizen called Leonard Kopp, a member of the town council and a former tax collector for the town, and he had a contract to deliver barrels of smoked herring to a cloister in Nymshen, which housed 12 unhappy nuns. Exactly how Cop did this is unknown, but somehow when he arrived, his canvas-covered wagon seemed to be carrying 12 barrels of smoked herring, and when he left, the wagon seemed to be loaded with 12 empty barrels underneath the ca canvas, but they were not empty, Two days later, nine nuns, three returned to their parents' homes, were delivered to Martin Luther's doorstep, and it was his job to find either positions or husbands for them. 
Uh, someone has pointed out, these nuns had been trained to do little more than sing and pray and get themselves ready for theocentric heaven. And so Luther gave his energy to finding place for these nuns. And he found places and married them off, all of them except one, a lady called Katie von Bora. A friend of his wanted to marry her, but her parents would not give permission, so she announced to everybody that she would not get married. She would only marry someone like Luther. So, so cut a long story short, there's a whole lot of stuff that happens in between of that. The long and short of it is that Luther marries this nun. I love that story. And I'm convinced that that wonderful story of God bringing these two people together is going to be told over and over again in heaven. And I'm sure that if Luther has anything to do with it, and Katie has anything to do with it, it will be over a pint of beer. Why do I say that? Because Luther often called Katie his brewer. That's what she did. She brewed beer. So what am I saying? I'm saying in heaven, Toza, one day, will sit down with Martin Luther. A.W. Toza might have to loosen up a little. And maybe Luther will have to be a little bit more disciplined. But I know this, that in heaven there's going to be a glorious union of God, delighting in Him and delighting in each other, of worship and fellowship. So I want to end this morning with this simple, simple thing for us to think about this week. Can we take our view of what heaven is and ask God to help us all to subject that over the next couple of months to what the Bible says heaven is. And when you and I think about it, when we talk about it, that we start with the right big ideas. And the single most important big idea that the Bible speaks about when it talks about heaven is that it is a promise to us. It is a promise to you. It's a promise to me. And we can be absolutely as certain of that promise as we are that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And I want to explore something of that with you next week. The first big idea is that heaven is a promise for you and it's a promise for me. And we can enjoy that and live lives that are joyful and free and happy without fear. Because we know he who promised us is faithful. Amen.